Hey there, Freedom Fighters. My name is Andrew Warner. I'm the founder of Mixergy, where I interview entrepreneurs about how they built their businesses. And part of the reason why I do these interviews is because years ago, I was at this conference in Las Vegas for podcasters, and I saw this guy, Gregory Gallant. This must have been the shyest person in the room. Were you shy back then when you started? I wouldn't say shy, but I don't know, maybe in different contexts, depending on what context I was in, could uh, not necessarily be the most gregarious person in the room. It definitely wasn't your place. Beyond the fact that you were podcasting, everyone else there was trying to be like an actor, an over-the-top something in an environment, podcasting, we're talking about over 10 years ago, that wasn't really ready for it. You know what I mean? Remember, weren't there podcasters who had bobbleheads made for them at a world where nobody even knew what a podcast was? Anyway, so in this room with people who wanted to be comedians and actors and do all that and shove it into the medium of podcasting was this guy who I felt was shy. And I love talking to people, especially shy people. And I said, Venture Voice, what's that? And Greg says to me, I interview entrepreneurs. I go, holy crap. I have no interest in any of this other stuff. I only listen because I'm a podcast addict. This I listened to. I went back and I listened to his podcast, Venture Voice. I did not miss a single episode of his podcast. To date, I have not missed a single episode of your podcast. We would talk about it when I lived in Los Angeles with other entrepreneurs who were just on the, the edges of this whole startup ecosystem that was developing. And his show was one that we were listening to. And then the freaking guy stops podcasting. I say, okay, I still use his old podcast episodes for research. And then the episodes break on his website. Go, all right, this is why I'm charging. Because if I charge, then I make money from the podcast and it could continue to survive because it's important to me that the podcast episodes I record and that the history that I record of people building their businesses is preserved. But what's he doing when he's neglecting his podcast and neglecting his fans? He goes off and he builds these two companies that have done killer well. The first is the Shorty Awards. Every celebrity in this new social media world, whenever the Shorty Awards go on, is basically begging us, their fans, to vote for them on the Shorty Awards because Gregory Gallant decided he was going to create an award ceremony where people's votes counted. So Casey Neistat interrupts his vlog, incredibly popular, to say, don't forget, vote for me on this. Kara Swisher, who's like the most serious, above everything person out there, says, and by the way, I, I probably shouldn't tell you this because I'm above this. I, I don't know exactly what her phrasing was, but you should vote for me on the Shorty Awards. So this thing blows up into this big event. It's like the, the Oscars of social media. And then he goes off and he creates Muckrack. It's basically a tool for anyone who's in the media to find reporters, to get alerts on news stories, to generate reports, and so on. I only know this because Mark Cuban is not only a customer of his, he goes and brags about. Anyway, so I'm a big fan of Greg's. I want to find out about how he turned, how he built these businesses. <sighs> I really, there's a little bit I want to know about your podcast, but I'm really fascinated by how you decided to start these companies and how they took off. And we'll talk a little bit about the painful one that didn't work out. And we can do it thanks to two phenomenal sponsors. The first, if you're hiring developers, you need to know about TopTal. The second, if you're building a website, I'll tell you later why you should sign up for HostGator. First, Greg, good to have you here. Great to be on. Dude, dollars and cents. How much money are you making with Muckrack? I feel like that's the money maker. Give me a sense. 
We don't we don't release the numbers publicly, but we have over uh, over eighty employees now. We're profitable, and it's been growing quickly. Fair to say, over six million dollars a year in revenue. Uh, yeah, that's fair to say. Okay, I, I get a sense based on the number of people that are on the team. Shorty Awards is that a money maker, or is that just a, a like a big celebrity thing? Yeah, that's also, uh, it, it, it's something that we run out of passion, but it's, it's a sustainable business. We have five people who work on it year round and, uh, and it's you know, done, done well every year we've ran it. But not a profitable business? It's profitable, but not, um, not a hugely, pro- you know, it's not like a software business where it throws off, you know, where it has that same profit potential, but to make something sustainable, you have to make a profit. What got you into podcasting? Yeah, you know, it was originally when I was in um, when I was in college. I started my first business in high school, do, building websites. Back when that was the new thing, my um, senior year of college, I worked at. I got this uh, job working at, as an associate producer at CNN.com. I went to school in Atlanta. So I kept getting stuck in Atlanta traffic uh, going to get to CNN headquarters. And I hated Atlanta radio. And the iPod had just come out. And it occurred to me like, oh, potentially I could get you know, content other than music on my iPod. Maybe I could download the news and MP3s and listen on there. And I was thinking, well, CNN has, you know, they had a radio syndication network. I'm like, I'm sure they have it. So at first I was just, podcasting wasn't a thing yet. I was just thinking like, could I get MP3s uh, about, you know, the news or, or just any kind of content for MP3s and sync it to my iPod. And I started researching around. At the time it was considered RSS feeds with enclosures was the original hot name of podcasting, what became podcasting. And the idea was RSS feeds existed for news. You'd have an enclosure file, meaning it would link to the MP3. And then you could have a podcatcher, as they called them, and that would download it and sync it to iTunes, which didn't yet have anything like this built in. So I, I thought that was just such an interesting idea that it could create this really al- compelling alternative to radio. And then as I was looking at it more, I saw there were just a couple mentions back then of podcasting. And so many people now, it surprises me that they don't know that the name podcasting comes from the iPod. My wife but, didn't know that until a few days ago. I, I just assumed that they all knew it. But I think we assumed that everybody knew what podcasting was back then. But really, until recently, maybe until Serial, most of the world had no clue what podcasting is. And you know what? I wouldn't be surprised if today still most of the world doesn't know what podcasting is. Well said. Yeah. And, I, and you know, I, I come, even a lot of people who love podcasts now, I tell them I started in 2005. And they're shocked. They're like, it existed back then. They, you know, they feel like it was just invented five years ago. Right. We're talking about before the iPhone existed. For me, it was, I discovered podcasting as a listener because there was this guy on Engadget who was somehow kicked off of Engadget and his whole trace of him being on the site was removed. But he was such a geek. He said, here's how geeks run. And he showed like this watch for tracking how you run. I thought, I didn't know you could do that, where you run, how fast you were on and put it on a computer so you can analyze it. And then here's how you can get podcasts on an MP3 device. I think he didn't even have an iPod. And I thought, wait, you could do that? And I started downloading a few and then I would save them because you never know if they go away or something. I don't know why I thought I would would re-listen to them, but they felt so precious. 
And then I encouraged my sister and her boyfriend, who were both, um, they were into comedy. He was a comedian. Um, and I encouraged them to create a podcast, and they actually did it because they were also Howard Stern fans like me. I used to listen to talk radio as a kid a lot, Rush Limbaugh, Howard Stern, anyone if they had it, um, Bob Grant. And uh, I encouraged him to do it. He was a fan of talk radio. He did it. And then the thing kind of took off. That's why I ended up in Las Vegas at that podcast conference. So you were listening. You saw it emerge. What made you say, I think I should be interviewing people on it? Yeah, so basically, I, I, I got really into it. I was graduating school, and I always wanted to be an entrepreneur ever since I started that business in high school. So as I was graduating, I'm like, all right, I just want to get into podcasting and learn about it. What's the best way to do that? Let me try starting a podcast. And then I thought to myself, well, what should the topic be? And having been an entrepreneur, I also, also spent the summer uh, working at a venture firm and what, what I was always super hungry for was just knowing like how, what, what made it work? How did these entrepreneurs scale up these companies? And at the time, uh, it's, you know, it's easy to take for granted now that you can get all this content thanks to people like yourself and, and entrepreneurs writing blog posts about themselves and VCs blogging and all that. But back in 2005, there was almost nothing. I felt like all there was, I subscribed to Inc. Magazine, an entrepreneur, and there'd occasionally be an article about an entrepreneur in a paper. But it was always a 500-word article, and it would be like, hey, Andrew started this business. Then one paragraph later, it's now got 10,000 employees. And I was like, wait, wait, what'd they do between like starting the business and even hiring their first employee and getting to 10? And, and like, I, just, I was so hungry for that information. And it just wasn't anywhere public on the web at the time. So I thought like, hey, that could be a really cool show. So we're just interviewing these entrepreneurs about how they got started. And I just thought, worst comes to worst. I just wanted to know that myself. So it'll be, uh, be some fun interviews to do. And what I remember you doing was taking your microphone to their offices and recording, getting them uh, to do interviews with you by calling them up. You'd call up the office of the company that you wanted to interview. Do you remember the first interview that you did, who it was? Very well, yeah, it was Dick Costello, who was, yeah, Mm -hmm. at the time, the CEO of FeedBurner, an RSS analytics company. Uh, And at the time that was hot in the podcasting scene because podcasters would use it to measure measure their podcasts. Mm -hmm. So I uh, I call their main number, I'm like, hey, who can I speak to about setting up an interview with your CEO? This is Dick. I'm the CEO. I'm like, oh, hey, uh, I'd love to set up a time to interview you on my podcast, Venture Voice. Meanwhile, you went to the website. It was like just a logo, nothing, nothing there indicating credibility. But I don't think he'd ever been on a podcast before. And podcasts were just so new. I think he was uh, intrigued by it. So he's like, all right, give me a call on Monday at 1 p.m. The, the person was over the phone. And he's like, but one condition. I'm like, yeah, whatever. You know, you're the first, I didn't say it, but you're the first guest. He's like, you have to call me on my cell phone. And now I knew nothing about audio prior to that, but every piece of advice I read at the time, it's changed a lot since due to VoIP, but every piece of advice I read at the time was never do an interview on someone's cell phone because the quality was really crappy on cell phones back then. Uh, But, you know, I took what I could get. So I'm like, 
yeah, sure. I have to call you your cell phone, but I'm, I'm just curious. Do you mind if I ask you why? He's like, yeah, we only have one line here. So if I'm on the phone with you for an hour, customers won't be able to get through. Like, that's a good reason. And then, of course, for anyone who doesn't know, Dick Costello ended up eventually selling FeedBurner to Google for $100 million and then became the CEO of Twitter, who took Twitter public. In the interview, you asked him, um, do you think there's a bubble? And we're talking about 2005. <laughs> Is it really called Web 2.0 or Bubble 2.0? I think was, was one of the things that you guys discussed. Which just goes to show throughout the internet's history, there are people who think that it's overhyped, overexpanded. Meanwhile, hardly anyone still use. I thought until COVID, everyone was buying their groceries online because why would you go into a freaking grocery store? Little did I know, even today, most people do not buy their groceries online. Um, you kept on going. One of the things that I remember being disappointed by was you did not stay in. And the reason I keep uh, referring back to the past is we talked when we met in Vegas, but also um, after I started podcasting, I reached out to you and I said, would you let me interview you and ask you uh, about how you do it? At the time, by the way, I thought, Greg, you were a little bit, you, you were very gracious and you said, yes, let me answer all your questions. But I felt that maybe you were a little bit threatened by it too. Be open. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, you know, very early time growing that all. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think Venture Voice, I mean, it was probably the first podcast of its kind, like just interviewing entrepreneurs. Uh, I, I hesitate to make the definitive statement like that because the internet's such a wide right. place, it's easy to miss something. But I'm, I'm pretty sure it was, or at least the first one that got out there. So yeah, you know, there's always that element as an entrepreneur, especially when you're starting out, that you want to uh, keep what you're doing special. So on one hand, you want to help other entrepreneurs out and invite them in. But on the other hand, you don't, don't want to uh, invite too much competition when that's your main thing. Meanwhile, you have to be glad that you did it because, first of all, you helped me. I was going to go anyway. It wasn't like without you, I would have been in trouble. But it created a relationship. You ended up moving on to other things anyway. And then when you came back, you know, you can count on this guy who you invested in a friendship with uh, to be there. By the way, I, get I, I do have to say in many years of my career, there have been people who I thought I was competing with and ended up being great partners either because they're, you know, our businesses evolved in different ways or people end up at new yeah. companies. So I, I think it's a great, great philosophy. That happens to me a lot. The, I remember one guy, competed with me, called me up out of the blue. I was so angry at him all the time, but I held back because I went to Dale Carnegie training. He ended up buying my company, you know, like the previous company, wow. right? So like this whole thing that I'm so glad I held back on uh, was actually good. Do you have any examples of, of that, of someone who you thought was competitive with you over the years, but ended up being a partner or working with you in some way? That's a great question. You know, we have, uh, I mean, through Buckrack, we have a number of uh, partners now where early on, you know, it wasn't exactly clear how we both, um, where exactly we both fell. Like we just uh, completed a great partnership with BusinessWire that's going extremely well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, broadly we're in the same area, PR, you know, kind of PR services and, you know, we could have decided to compete with each other. Instead, it made more sense to work together and it's been a extremely fruitful relationship. You know, the other one, you know, even outside of that, I found 
even when I have direct competitors who I'm never going to partner with, there's this weird thing where I've gotten to become friends with, with many of them and even go out to dinner with, with some of them. And it's the weirdest thing where it's like, even when we're direct competitors and it's like, we know that there's no way our companies are ever going to, um, partner and, uh, you know, as we are speaking, probably our teams are fighting over the same deal, but there's also no greater compassion you can have with someone than your competitor because you all deal with the exact same issues and dynamics. So even if I'm having dinner with a great friend of mine who's an entrepreneur in a different field, you know, they're not going to relate to me on all these nuances in my industry, whereas the direct competitor knows all that. So, you know, I found it, you know, the, the markets out there are all really big and uh, there's lots of um, opportunities. So I found it's been, you know, just great to develop friendships. And then also I've had it several times where, yeah, it might be somebody who's a competitor now that it, they, they leave and there's a new CEO and then it's a friendship that I still have. So there's, uh, there's, there's been quite a few instances like that. So let me close out Venture Voice. And I should say to anyone who's listening, Venture Voice, he just rebooted it. He started it off with Mark Cuban, who came on and said, I'm a customer of Muckrack. Let me do your ad for you about why Muckrack is so helpful for me. It gives me better alerts about um, uh, news stories about me than Google. And it's useful in all these different ways. And so, and he also did a great interview with uh, uh, Mark Cuban on the Venture Voice podcast. But let me close it out with this. One of the things that stuck with me over the years was when you did do that interview with me where you answered my questions about podcasting, I asked you, do you stay in touch with these entrepreneurs thinking this is an hour of intimate conversation with somebody who you get to know and they get to see the, the, the caring that you have for them? And you said, no, no, sometimes I stay in touch, usually not. I wondered, what did you get over the years as an entrepreneur from those interviews that you did when you started out? Yeah, I'd say a, a few different things. You know, one is it got, I learned a ton from it, you know, as you can imagine, as you get from listening to it. But uh, I'm sure you know, it's always more visceral when you're the one actually having the conversation that said, there were plenty of things I didn't learn from it. One, one funny irony I noticed was uh, they would all, many of them told me the thing that the most fatal mistake you can make in a company is being too early to market or in a tech company at least. And I remember there was this part of me, it was probably because I was younger, I was like, yeah, yeah, old man, but you know, I, I'm sure I'm just going to make it work. And sure enough, you know, I was just too early to podcasting back in, uh, back in 05 for some of the things I was trying to do. Meaning, uh, you, sorry, we'll get to that. I actually want to get into that. Um, but yeah, what was it that you got that was helpful then? Yeah, so, so what was helpful, I mean, it was definitely, it was definitely great for networking. Uh, met lots of great people. I mean, men, you know, some of them I did stay in touch with and created some great relationships out of. Uh, meeting listeners like yourself, many of them I, I ended up uh, you know, getting, uh, you know, building relationships that have lasted me till, till today. And then it actually led very directly into the two businesses I run now. Uh, Cause it got me like right on the forefront of where technology was going with web 2.0, as we called it back then and in social media. Uh, so, you know, one example was having Ev Williams on who, 
at the time was working on this extremely hot company. It was hot because they'd managed to raise $3 million as a consumer internet company, which today would be considered nothing, but back then was a huge deal because everyone was still shell-shocked from the, the bubble in, in 99. And uh, he starts Odeo, which was meant to be a podcasting directory. It was the hottest podcasting company at the time. And I had Evan, and we kind of stayed in Dutch because uh, we were you know, both doing podcasting businesses, and I'd launched a uh, podcast ad business on the side of uh, Venture Voice. And then Odeo didn't work out, so they pivoted to a little side project called Twitter. And I encourage anyone to look up the original TechCrunch article about Twitter, where they're like, yeah, this is kind of cool, but Ev's a real fool for not focusing on Odeo the great business uh. that he's working on. So everyone thought they were just being reckless almost doing this Twitter side project. Back then it was TWTTR. But yeah, I was following him. So I signed up to Twitter pretty early. So I got my first name on there at Gregory just because it was open. It wasn't, I didn't call on a paper even. And then it was from being on Twitter in those early days that led to the idea for the Shorty Awards. And then doing the Shorty Awards, seeing how much press that got led to the idea for Muckrack. And the rest is history. So I don't know that I'd be in the business I'm in today if it weren't for podcasting. And in a way, I don't know if Twitter would exist if it weren't for podcasting because, uh, you know, Ev and, and you know, Jack and, and all those guys would have never gotten into business together. So let's talk about that one company, Radiotail, that you were starting to say is a little bit early. Radiotail did online ads for podcasts, right? That's right. So started it soon after Venture Voice. It seemed okay. obvious to me in launching Venture Voice that these people doing podcasts will want to, want to find a way to make money and be sustainable. And it seemed like the rest of the web advertising would be the way to do it. And there were kind of two ideas behind it that at the time went after you know, both of them intertwined, which was on one hand, it would make sense for a company to aggregate the sales of these podcasts because it wouldn't make sense for every podcaster to do their own sale. And two, that the, pod, that the ad should be inserted dynamically. So in other words, rather than you doing a static ad where you read the ad and then it'll live with that podcast for the next 10 years, even though that advertiser might leave you, that it'd be better to serve the ads at the time the person downloads the podcast. Right. So that you could say, okay, I'll, you know, just like every other form of uh, web advertising at the time, like, okay, we'll give you 10,000 downloads for the, to put this And this ad is one in. of the problems that we have with advertising and podcasting right now. You sell an ad. If the interview that I do the ad in bombs, the advertiser still is paying the same amount as if I had one that did 3x the number of downloads. Whoever was in there suddenly got a windfall. They didn't know why. And it's because you can't dynamically we don't dynamically serve it up. There are starting to be ways. And so I get that you found that. Did you sell ads at the time? I don't remember if you had ads or not. Uh, I did in some of them, yeah. And then we, we did some, uh, a few that I sold just for Venture Voice and then some of them that were uh, dynamically inserted where we sold them through Radio Tail and inserted them in a bunch of podcasts, including that. So you created the software to dynamically insert ads? You yeah, we actually built dynamic ad serving software wow. in 2005. 
Because then what it would mean is that you would have to have podcast hosting software to host the audio files, which were very expensive to host back then, and know where to put the ads and serve them up dynamically. You built all that. We built all that. And actually the way that we built it to get around the, the hosting cost, it's a great thing to point out because you'd have to host everything. Yeah. We built a redirect. Uh, so we gave people the analytics for free. So you just put a redirect in front of your MP3. But then if we were serving an ad for you, only when we would serve the ad, we would then use that redirect to actually serve the MP3 itself with the ad dynamically inserted. What do you we mean even had a redirect? How would that work? So in other words, like when you, uh, when you post one of these podcasts, it's, it has a URL on the web, mixergy.com slash greg.mp3. So you would uh, put this prefix to it and you would say radiotail.com slash question mark mixergy.com okay. slash greg.mp3. Meaning that it would go, it would first ping our server when someone, someone's uh, iTunes account or whatever they use to download their podcast. It would first ping our server and then push it to wherever the MP3 goes from. So we could track and okay. tell that there was the, uh, there was a download. Okay. But if we were going to serve the ad, then we'd, instead of redirecting it, we would just serve uh, you, this dynamically generated MP3 with an ad in it. Got it. Only if there was an ad to go out, you would serve it out. Otherwise, it's too expensive to serve the MP3 if you're not making money from the advertising. But still, it would mean that you would dynamically add the advertising into the podcast episode, which is pretty impressive technology, especially back then. Who built it? You keep saying we at this point. Who's the we? Yeah, it's myself and uh, a friend of mine, a guy named Aaron Quint, and we we co-founded the company. He did the tech, I did the uh, I did the business side, and uh, we'd kind of work together on the product. I find that podcast advertising was really really hard until about four years ago or so. How was it back when you were doing it? Brutal, brutal. Uh, br- yeah, because there were. There were a few elements, you know, and looking back at it, it's super clear to me what the problem was. At the time, I was very caught up in like all the challenges of building the business and making the sale and all the tactical stuff. But what took a while to become clear, and yet it's obvious in retrospect, it was just too early in the market. And, you know, now it's like, if you tell me about a podcast when we're out to drinks, I can, uh, I can just pull it off of my iPhone and be listening to it 10 seconds later as I'm walking away from the bar. Back then, it was like, okay, I got to go home. Uh, <laughs> really early on, I had to actually download third-party software to get it. But even right. after iTunes added it, I had to have iTunes open so my computer would sync with, so my iTunes would sync to download the file. Then I had to sync my iPod and what I learned doing it was a lot of people wouldn't even sync their iPod on a daily basis. They'd charge their iPod just into the wall and they'd only sync it every month because if you didn't, before podcasting, you would only sync your iPod when you bought a new album. So there wasn't even this um, habit of syncing your iPod. And then even syncing the iPod, it wouldn't work that well. So a lot of times I would leave my own home and then realize that the sync didn't work and be disappointed that all my podcasts weren't loaded on my iPod. And I'm a pretty, pretty technically uh, savvy guy. 
Yeah. So there were just so many challenges. Even for my own mother, when I listened to my podcast, I had to burn it on an audio CD for her <laughs> so she could pop it in her car CD player and take a listen. So it's just so hard. So they just weren't, there just wasn't the volume of listenership back then that there is today. So it was really hard to convince advertisers to deal with it because podcasting has all these disadvantages relative to the web, you know, that it's harder to track. Uh, well, it, it, you know, I'm preaching to the choir here, but there are all these challenges to the podcast yeah. that you don't have on the web where, where the web taught every, every advertiser to expect all this trackability. Podcast has tremendous strengths. I still believe in podcast advertising and think it's a great format, but unless you had the volume, you know, it was, it just made another challenge to explain it to advertisers and without that volume and with so many advertisers not even knowing what podcasts were or having ever used it themselves, it makes it so much harder. Yeah. And so that's the big problem. You're way, way ahead, way ahead of where everyone else was. And you were thinking they would get to you and eventually they did, but that would have been a slog for years and years and years. You told me when we were talking privately, this was painful for you to admit defeat and close up. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So I, I, I've been doing video tale, uh, Trying to think exactly how long it was before I two really. Years. Yeah, it was about two years in total. There, there was some point before the two years where I'd, um, I think I'd realized it wasn't going to work, and it was more of a wind down period. But yeah, I went at it really hard, and you know, I'm not. Uh, I'd never had to close something up before for it not working. And I just had this belief, you know, you can, I mean, I think it's something that every entrepreneur struggles with, but where you, you tie up your own identity with the business. So there is a bit of me like the business fails. Does it mean that I failed? I didn't think of it so much. You know, I think a better way to think about it is like a scientific experiment. You're like, let me try. I have this hypothesis. Let me try it. It didn't work. The market wasn't ready. So you know, it, it was for a while there, it was wrapped up with me where I'm like, I'm going to make this thing work by sheer force of will. And, you know, you hear, and it's part of the hard thing about interviewing entrepreneurs because you hear those stories where someone's like, you know, the whole world didn't believe in me and I pushed it through and then they got it and then it worked. So separating that from the moments where it's like, oh wait, this, this really is like I tried yeah. it and I gave it my all and it's time to move on to something new. That, that's what I, uh, I really struggled with and uh, it was a hard, hard moment to, uh, to hit. Yeah, you're talking about Ev Williams famously in uh, Jessica Livingston's book of interviews with, with the big success stories of Web 1.0. She talks about how I think he was basically sleeping by his server in wherever it was that it was hosting. He actually got to touch it because he was the only one left at the company and he had to keep the server up and running while he was keeping, um, what was the company called? It was called Blogger. While he was getting Blogger to actually work with its users and it was a slog, but eventually it did pay off for him. He sold it to Google. That's where he made his bones and allowed himself to raise the whopping $3 million for Odeo. So I get it. In retrospect, you did make the right decision. You really could have been in for a world of pain trying to force this on a world that wasn't ready. You created the Shorty Awards. How? 
Yeah, the Shorty Awards, it's funny. The Shorty Awards I thought was the least viable business idea I ever had. Was it a business idea? Think... Sorry? I've been wondering, was it a business idea? You characterized No, it wasn't it. even it a business even idea. Yeah, so I, so I was on Twitter in the really early days and a lot of people don't realize like how long Twitter took to take off. You know, it started, I believe, in 2006 and then didn't really take off till 08. And I was on it early, but it took, me, it took me a few months before I really got it. There were a few months, I think, early on where I'd log in once a month to, to plug a link that I had or something, and that would be it. But I started getting into it in 08. That's when it felt like there started to be a tipping point. And what struck me about Twitter was, unlike Facebook, which I got on when it was being rolled out to colleges and I was in college, and uh, the other social networks that came before it, they were all closed down. So like Facebook at the time, it was just you and your friends. There was no concept of like being good at Facebook because it was just something you'd share photos with just your friends with. There was no public content. Twitter was so interesting because you had these celebrities and journalists and subject matter experts getting on and sharing stuff about their fields. So I was like, oh wait, this is more like blogging or almost more like TV or any form of uh, media where you can actually be good at it and find an audience. Kind of like podcasting in a way, uh, which is maybe why I came out of podcasting. So I was like, oh, people can actually be good at Twitter and they're talking about different topics. But Twitter had no discoverability at the time. So if you were like, hey, I'm interested in sports, where can I find people tweeting about sports? Or I'm interested in, in... in science, where can I find scientists on Twitter? There was nowhere to go. So my first thought was like, hey, can we aggregate, um, can we figure out who are the best people by topic on Twitter? Uh, and, yeah. and then I was like, and we could crowdsource that in a cool way. People could actually tweet out who they think is the best by topic. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, well, how do we get them to want to tweet out who they think is the best by topic? Let's call it an award. And so uh, the banding budget was, uh, was $8, which is about what it cost to buy domain name and GoDaddy back then. Okay. So he's playing around for open domains and thought tweets are short, shorty, shorty awards. And I pitched it to my now uh, co-founder, um, uh, who, who's, uh, who's conti- I continue to work with and is our CTO, an amazing programmer, uh, Lee Semmel. And I, I pitched him on the idea and I'm like, you know what, it's not going to make any money, but I'm pretty sure we could build this in one weekend. Uh, I think it'd be a lot of fun. He said, I'm in. Ended up taking us two weekends, but we literally built the whole thing in, in two weekends. Uh, you know, wireframing, writing the copy, coding it. And we put it it out there. And what it would do is anyone could tweet out who they thought was, should win a shorty award in whatever topic, like maybe startups, I think was one of the topics you tweeted out and the shorty awards website would just calculate who got the most uh, points and then put together a leaderboard based on topic. Am I right? Yeah, exactly. And, And even more, you could even make up your own categories that first year. So you can make up any category you wanted. We said we'd only give awards in the official categories, but it was kind of this fun crowdsourced site. And I should note it since changed that that's not how it works anymore. It's gotten a lot more rigorous. But that first year, it was this kind of free-for-all. Anybody could tweet out 
uh, any vote for whoever they wanted. Yeah, here's, here's one of mine. January 16, 2009, at Shorty Awards, I vote for at Mark in the Shorty Awards finals for hashtag photography because he makes the rest of us look good. That was Mark who was taking pictures of people at the time in tech. And because I would do that, everybody who was following me would see at Shorty Awards. Back then, Twitter would just let everyone who's following a person see it, regardless of what the first uh, uh, mention was. In the, and so everybody would go and see what is the Shorty Awards. They would then say, well, I should go and nominate someone or I'd like to be nominated. Let me go and ask people to nominate me. And this thing grew vir virally. And then the next step was live. How? Yeah, so when we put up the website, we made no promises that there would be an in-person event. Uh, but after it, went, after it went viral, it became the top, top trending term on Twitter, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, BBC, all, all reached out to us in those first 24 hours to cover it. And I realized like, oh, you know, people are going to actually want to come to this thing and we better put on a show. And I didn't know how long the Twitter fad would last. So I'm like, we got to do this soon. So I just announced the show would be two months from that, that date, you know, that about, about, you know, two months from right after it went viral. And looking back at it now, it just seems insane to do that because I know how long it takes to plan an event. But we just said, yeah, it'll be in two months. We didn't know any better. I've never worked so hard in my life, Andrew. I called everybody I knew. So, you know, when it, when it went viral, we didn't have sponsors. We didn't have a venue. We didn't have a host. Uh, it was just a website. And so I managed to get the, uh, the Knight Foundation and Pepsi to sponsor it that first year. Uh, the venue we used... I did the whole deal on a handshake, no contract, no insurance requirement, just a handshake with the venue owner. And again, looking back at it now, knowing that we signed 30 page contracts with venues and, and well, at least we did before the pandemic and, and uh, we'd sign 30 page contract with venues and do extent, extensive insurance. Like it just seems insane to me that I just did it on a handshake, but I didn't know any better. What so was the that's venue? what we did. And did the it? first year, I mean, Oh, and we also got, it was called Galapagos Art Space in Dumbo, Dumbo, Brooklyn, which um, is right by, down under the Manhattan Bridge overpass. And at the time, now it's a really hot area and, and you know, there's always people taking photos there. But at the time, it was like just when it was starting to turn around. Oh, and I also got uh, MC Hammer to come that first year by direct messaging him as well as Gary Vaynerchuk, who is uh, just a uh, hot, you know, up and coming blogger at the time. And the reason that you got um, MC Hammer is MC Hammer was interested in technology. He was interested in, in, I think, investing in technology. He was part of the whole tech crunch world. And so by reaching out, you were able to get a response. Let me ask you this. You've said this was just like a thing that happened. You're you're an entrepreneurial guy. You think about business and have since you were young. Why would you get carried away with this without saying to yourself, where is this thing going? Especially considering that you already had a, a painful experience with a business before. Yeah, I, I knew I was, you know, as painful as it was, I knew I wanted to keep trying and, uh, and, I guess that's one thing I learned from Venture Voice, and I'm sure you see it too, doing these long-form interviews. You, you hear how many failures people have on the way to success that they'll edit out of the short version of their bio. 
and you know, I don't tell the story when I only have 30 seconds to introduce myself just because it wouldn't, uh, wouldn't fit. But yeah, I knew I wanted to do more stuff. The other thing that, that the Shorty Awards taught me was the importance of timing and what traction was. Because when I was slogging it with Radio Tail, like that was my first product-based business and first business where I, you know, where I put um, a lot more pressure on it in terms of like, you know, building a product and all that versus uh, just doing, uh, doing consulting. And so I didn't, you know, I thought it would always be that hard to get people interested in the shorties felt easy compared because it was like, it's the same guy as the person who did Radio Tail and I was putting in the same amount of effort, but I was getting a ton more return for it because the market wanted what I created. So people were excited about the Shorty Awards in a way they were never excited about Radio Tail. So I'd have these, you know, I'd do the calls, I'd put all that effort in, but I'd get a much higher win rate, you know, between when I talk to people and yeah. some, someone saying yes to my idea. So this, I got to say the Shorty Awards is really the first time I really felt like, felt what it was like to have traction or, you know, product market fit as it later became known. Uh, and, and it was uh, really invigorating. I mean, I never, it was one of the uh, most fun times of my life, just putting that together in the first couple months. All right. That kind of feeds into my first sponsor, Paul Graham, October, 2020, put up a, an, an essay called early work. I, I, I actually had my iPad read it to me while I was making myself some lunch. And then when it accidentally started repeating it, I said, I want to hear it again. I didn't stop it. This is so, it was so meaningful. He says, look, one of the biggest things holding people back from doing great work is fear of making something lame, fear of making something lame. And this fear is not an irrational one. Many great projects go through a stage early on where they don't seem very impressive, even to their creators. You have to push through the stage to reach the great work that lies beyond. But many people don't. Most people don't even reach the stage of making something they're embarrassed by, let alone continue past it. They're too frightened to even start. And then he goes through in this essay about all the different ways that you can get past it without compromising your good taste and your sensibility. How can you create something lame? And he says, one of them is just make it a hobby or do it as a way of being, of expressing your curiosity. And this is partially what you did with the Shorty Awards. It's also partially the way that I talk about HostGator, my sponsor, which is HostGator is so inexpensive for hosting websites. In fact, for under five bucks a month, you can get an unlimited hosting package, meaning they'll host as many domains as you throw at them, which means that anytime you have an idea for an awards this, for a site that sells that, whatever, you don't have to think about it. He talks about sketching it out on paper. This is the same type of thing. Sketch it out on the internet for people to see, or frankly, maybe save, save it and keep it private for yourself to see what it looks like to decide whether you want to continue with it or not. And if it captures your heart, if it feels right, you'll know it more when you see it and get past that, that in your head part than if you just keep it in your head. And so, I'm going to tell everyone listening to me that if you haven't yet played around with a site, forget creating a site for business purposes, forget the more proper thing that you should be doing. If you haven't yet just sketched, I urge you to go to hostgator.com slash Mixergy, sign up. And when you throw the slash Mixergy at the end, really, of course, I get credit for sending you over. I don't get paid any extra. They paid up for a bunch of ads, regardless of how many orders they get. But I want them to know that you're coming for me. And so you'll be helping me out that way. But you'll also help yourself because you get the lowest price that they have available and you'll get an incredible hosting package that will allow you to experiment by putting websites up hostgator.com slash Mixergy. Maybe one of your ideas ends up being like the Shorty Awards, this thing that you thought was just a, a game, a play, a thing. 
but actually becomes this life-changing experience. All right, Shorty Awards first event, successful, right? People came? Very successful, yeah, almost too successful. We had a venue that could fit uh, 300 and we had 400 people show up. So it was actually a little, I mean, it was very successful. It was a little bit of a, of a mess because we, we, there were very important people who couldn't even get to the door because we didn't have that level of organization the Do first year. Do you remember year. who was the one that you complained about? Oh, um, well, the, I, I'm kind of ashamed to say it. So uh, John Borthwick, the founder of Betaworks, was extremely gracious in helping in helping uh to to get starting connections and then uh he was one of the people who couldn't get in i felt so awful i called him the next day to apologize and he was extremely gracious about it uh but but him and yeah many others it was just like i was terrified we wouldn't have enough people show up and we had the opposite problem and and you know just organizing in two months with people who aren't professional you yeah. know they're an event production background makes it crazy but it worked and it had so much buzz. And in the first year you can get away with that. By the second year we hired professional event producers and we, that's not the kind of mistake you can make twice and have any credibility, but we were forgiven by the community that, that first year. I want to close out uh, Shorty Awards by asking who are some of the big names who've shown up over the years? Lizzo, I think performed, am I right? That's right. Yeah. We, we have well, Lizzo perform panic at the disco Amanda Palmer, uh, on the music side, we had uh, Michael Bloomberg while he was the mayor of New York come, not to be honored for being the mayor of New York, but for being the mayor of City Hall on Foursquare and delivered an excellent speech oh, about that's great. that. Okay. Anyone else? Uh, um, uh, Casey Neistat did end up winning that year, right? Vlogger yeah, of the right. year Casey or Casey Neistat's actually won, won twice and, and yeah, was there... I think he's been to three of them for winning twice. And then um, I, he, he's also done, uh, been a presenter other years. We've had MKBHD, the top, yeah. uh, top gadget reviewer on YouTube, come to accept the award. Uh, Tyler Oakley, many of the biggest names on, uh, on social media. And, and within the, that influencer world, it's kind of this, you know, for them it, they might not know the Oscars, but they know this. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's weird for me because, I don't know, you know, I still think of myself sometimes as a young guy in the market, but then I meet these influencers and they're like 19. So the shorties have existed since they were like seven, you know, and, and anything that exists before you can remember yeah. has this um, aura to it. Sense of permanence. You know, yeah, so like if you met someone who was 100 years old and was involved in the first Oscars that took place 80 plus years ago, you'd be like, oh my God. So it's, a, you know, the, I think there's like this weird dynamic for these 19 year olds who are like, someone started the Shorty Awards? Like you don't even think oh. about the fact that a human being started an award show. This just you know, always like, existed. Yeah, like the Nobel Prize or the Oscars. You don't think of them as like Microsoft. Like, oh yeah, of course, Bill Gates started Microsoft. But, but you know you what's hear, interesting about the Shorty Awards? The way to that you obviously everything we've talked about is interesting, but what's maybe more impressive than all that is how relevant you kept it. You started out with a name that almost limited you to Twitter, but as social media stardom expanded beyond Twitter, you were able to keep up with that. And more importantly, 
as the people who would have been popular back when you started aged and newer people came in who would have every reason to say, I don't, I reject the older generation. I reject the Twitter generation. I'm whatever it is the new thing you manage to keep up. And part of it is because you ask people to vote and the reputation that you've had from the history of other people who've asked to vote, you get new people who then go and promote it to their audience, which then brings in a younger, right? MKBHD is bringing in a newer audience than whoever won the first one. Am I right? hundred percent. Yeah, that's a great point. It's this big pressure to constantly reinvent it because the medium we honor always changes. I would always think like the Oscars haven't really had to do much since they added sound to movies and it's been kind of a continuous stream. But for our medium, yeah, it's always changing. So you have to keep integrating these new, uh, these new communities into, into it and changing well, why the didn't categories. The Webbies do it? You did it. Why didn't the Webbies do it? The Webbies was the award ceremony for a long time. They didn't keep their cool. Why not? You're in the space. Yeah, I think, you know, the shorties were always about honoring. We started with honoring individuals, like honoring the actual creators on these social platforms. And then we've, we've now added this big part where we also honor brands. Whereas the, the Webbies started the opposite, where they, they started with this paradigm of honoring websites, and then they've had to adapt to this newer world that we're in. So I, I think highly of them too, but I, you know, I think it's a classic innovator's dilemma where, where they, were, they were built around something very different than what we were built around. That makes sense. You're right. You, you banked on the people, on the celebrities. They banked on the brands and the websites. And there was a period where the websites were shining. But once people could blog, it meant that we could see the people building our websites. And then we cared more about the people than the product. Okay. All right. Second sponsor. And then I want to understand how the Sounds shorty like awards. Sounds you're about to launch into another HostGator ad. I'm going to launch into now a TopTal ad, but I can't do a great segue into this. All I'm going to say to you is yeah. you asked me how TopTal, what TopTal was before we got started. How do you hire your developers at Muckrack? Through hook or crook. We'll find really? them any way we can. All right, I'm going to give you another little technique to add to your, to your repertoire. Keep all the things that are working, but when you have this one position that's hard to fill, that you're urgently needing to fill, go to toptal.com slash Mixergy, hit the button or ask your CTO to hit the button and schedule a call with TopTal. What they have is a network of some of the best developers in the market. In some spaces, they've got all the best developers, all the leaders, in their network available to work with you. And the reason that I say go to them is challenge them. Say, we've got this big project. I don't know how we could do it. We don't believe that you can do it. But let's see what they come back to you with. What they will often do is go and find within their network of people who've been pre-screened, pre-vetted, pre-tested, pre-everything, people who've done the project that is new to you, that is urgent to you. They've done it before, sometimes several times before. And they will put one or two people like that in front of you, Greg, or in front of your CTO. You do a Zoom like I'm doing with you. If you like the person, you can hire them. Often get started within days. If you don't, you've lost nothing. It's not like you, you're paying for even an ad. You're just asking them to go prove that, you, that they could do this. I've had people do this, Greg, who have huge um, networks who say, you know, I'd rather have the speed. I'd rather have the expertise. And they go to top tail. I shouldn't say people. I should be specific. We're talking Heaton Shaw. We're talking Neil Patel. We're talking several people who I've interviewed here who've gone on the record and said, dude, I'm not getting paid by top tail. I've hired from top tail. They're that good. I'm not telling you to hire. I'm saying add them to your repertoire and talk to them. If you do, you'll be blown away. If you don't, 
I'm always here. Andrew at Mixergy.com. Say, Andrew, you lied to me. I'm going to say that because I know most people who are going to listen to this are going to thank me for introducing them to Top Talent. And if you use this URL, Greg, even you, I know you're incredibly wealthy, but I also know that you still care about money. You're going to save a lot because if you go to uh, toptal.com slash Mixergy, you'll get 80 hours of developer credit when you pay for your first 80 hours in addition to the no risk trial period. By the way, I keep my camera on to see, is this resonating with my guests or not? I'm watching you smile as I'm saying this and it's like, <laughs> it's making me want to laugh as I'm talking. <laughs> this did sound a little bit like one of those infomercial promotions. It's like, I, I did the ad well, but I also came across a little bit like those infomercial guys that we were, used to watch as kids. I'm assuming you watched them and liked them as a kid. Did you? I, I, you know, I, I wouldn't say I like the infomercials, but I was always, uh, I was always intrigued by them. I could have sometimes hard to look away. Yeah. How, how do you do it? I, I want to know how to be a good salesperson. I was super shy. All right. Muckrack happened because of something you noticed at the Shorty Awards. What was that? Yeah. So that was, you know, another thing uh, about the, it, it was funny when I was doing the podcast stuff, I was always struggling to get press and I got some press, but it was extremely hard. With the Shorty Awards, it was the opposite. So in those first 24 hours, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, BBC, all caught us up wanting to cover it. And, uh, and we had a lot of amazing journalists just come there and check it out. We had Brian Stelter there, who now has his own show on CNN, and uh, all, all these journalists who were just kind of at the avant-garde of using social. So I saw, um, I saw there was this kind of huge interest in Twitter and social media by journalists. And yet there was no way to find them all. And it just struck me like if you cared about any publication, why wouldn't you want to know what all the journalists, all the journalists on it have to say? So, you know, if you're interested in the New York Times, when you want to see all the tweets from the people who write the New York Times, because, you know, what's the New York Times itself, aside from just a bunch of people writing it, uh, you know, or Wall Street Journal or Wired Magazine or any other outlet. So I had this idea that you could, and this was before Twitter lists even existed or before there was any way to curate uh, Twitter and, and social. So I had this idea, like, what if we just had a site that would just show you all the journals on Twitter in one place and show you all their tweets and organize them by publication? That was the original idea. Again, it was like, I bet you we could build this in a week. So I thought it was a week project, not a weekend project. Ended up taking two weeks rather than one week. But... It was just like, let's just build it. And my philosophy by this point is one of the lessons I learned from Radio Tale. Radio Tale, I spent a lot of time really planning it out before launching and, and researching it and building financial models. And then the Shorty Awards is this weekend project that it took off. So I was like, you know, if you can build something fast, there's no sense doing a bunch of analysis. Um, you know, if you have a business idea where you have to like, sign a lease and invest a million dollars. Yeah, you better do your business plan and, and make sure the numbers work and do research. But you can build it in a couple of weeks and like why bother researching? Because if it doesn't work, you're just out a couple of weeks. So that was, my, that was my philosophy at the time. I mean, still would be if I, if I had to have been with the relaunching uh, more businesses. Uh, and, and I just figured like, okay, let's just get it out there. So built it in two weeks, put it out there. It became very popular with journalists. Like the day after launching it, I had, um, I remember David Carr uh, at the time, like was one of the top media writers. He sadly since passed away, but he wrote the media equation in New York Times, like absolute legend in journalism circles. And he emails me the day after, like 
subject line, David Carr, can you add me to Muckrack? And we had over that year, uh, I learned later that the New York Times even linked to it in their internal intranet. So their own journalists could find their colleagues on social media. Wow. It was just all you were doing was finding journalists, organizing them by category and, and showing their tweets. That was the original iteration. Yeah. That was it. So that you could find a journalist who's writing about a topic you care about and see what they've said, what they've said about them. Were you making it easy for your users to contact journalists or was it just a database of what they tweeted out? Just what they tweeted. We made it easy to follow them on Twitter. Okay. But that was it at the time. Follow them on Twitter and find, I think, and we, we quickly added find their other social profiles too if, if it was okay. publicly linked. Today, it's like so much. Now it's like, it's your ideal CRM. There's a page that says everything about them. And on the right side, from what I remember, there's a phone number, an email address. It's like truly research on the person and easy connection with them. Exactly. It's come a long way since, uh, since the beginning. But it was that first iteration that we saw there was this resonance with journalists. Uh, they loved it because they wanted to, you know, have a get more, you know, attention for their personal brand out there on the web. And then being in New York around lots of PR people and, and kind of knowing that community, I talked to PR people or very PR savvy entrepreneurs, and they would just be like, "I love Muckrack. I use it to figure out who to pitch." I was like, "You guys don't have software that does that already?" And like, "No, none of our software does that." So I was like, after um, there's some twists and turns in there, but after uh, a little while of operating Muckrack, I realized like, oh, there's this, they're already using us for this business application and we weren't charging them for it and we didn't build, build it with that use case in mind. So you thought like, hey, we actually want to support that use case. There's a ton of pro tools we could build to find the right journals, like a search engine to find the journals, what they write about and what they tweet about. Uh, and then there's this obvious SaaS business model for it. And I'd seen friends of mine who'd started SaaS companies and I saw how powerful that was to have the recurring revenue. Because the short words, I mean, it was profitable. In those first couple of years, it was great to actually have a business making a profit every year, but it was so stressful to make that profit because every year I'd have to sign a big venue contract and then I'd have to sell my ass off to get the sponsorship. And if I weren't able to sell enough sponsorship, then I'd be on... Li personally liable, or at least you know, the business would be liable for which, which I took personally, uh, would be liable for all the, uh, all the costs. So it was super stressful every year, even when it made a profit. And I looked at these SaaS companies, I'm like, oh wait, you just know exactly how, how much money you're gonna get next month, or at least you can predict it you know, within a few percentage points. And then you can feel really good about hiring people and taking on overhead because you can predict your revenue. So I'm like, okay, we have, we solve a business problem and we could have a SaaS business model to solve it. So let's go. And so you started selling it to PR people who wanted to find reporters based on topic and have an easy way to contact them. Basically, it was like a LinkedIn for reporters based on topic, not company that they work for with, with an address book. Yeah, it's a great way to put it. And to take it even further, like the way people thought about building media lists and pitching journalists before we came along was, was like, let's say you made a new, um, you're doing PR for HostGator, you've got a new great, you know, great idea, something to launch. 
you'd go in and you'd be like, okay, let me just pitch every tech journalist. And the problem would be that like, well, there are all these people that show that they're tech journalists, but some only write about enterprise software and they're not going to cover your, you know, your small business hosting company. And some of them write about gadgets and they're never going to cover a hosting company. So our idea was like, we had this rich database with everything the journalists tweeted and wrote about, and you could search for any keyword or Boolean string you wanted. So you go in there and you could be like, show me all the journalists that have written about HostGator in past. Show me all the journalists writing about our competitor, GoDaddy. Uh, show me all the journalists who've ever mentioned the term WordPress hosting. And then you could do these super targeted pitches. So rather than pitching 500 journalists where 490 of them are, it's going to be irrelevant and they're going to get pissed off at you and mark you as spam. Here we're going to help you find like the 10 journalists that are like, you know, writing about the hosting market. And then you can just really customize those 10 emails and simultaneously follow them on Twitter, send them an email and really focus on making an impact and getting that journalist to pay attention to you. There were databases before though. You're just saying yours was, I think yours was just cheaper than theirs, right? And more targeted by subcategory, especially around this new world of social media and tech. Am, am I right? The difference was that the people before us were static databases. So it was more like picture a directory. It would just be like, click on business and tech, and then the subcategory might be consumer electronics, then you get a list of journalists. Yes. And they'd actually evolved out of being books, you know, like basically like phone books for journalists right. who get mailed right. out to people, been around for, for many decades. So we were the first to come in and be like, you know what? It's not a directory, it's a search engine. And you can search for any keyword you want and because of that build extremely targeted lists. So it ended up being much more about the, about the power, about just approaching it as like a search engine as opposed to directory than it was about uh, price. You also, from what I saw, you started out with, I think the first product was a press release. People could submit their press release, type it into your box, right? Pay you by PayPal, yeah, like that's 50 right. bucks. Yeah, so uh, this was actually a yeah, little, little known part of the story uh, where before we started the SaaS product, we just had this idea. My co-founder always brags that it was the, um, the best ratio of code to revenue because he wrote it in, I forget how many lines of code, like 50 lines of code or something like that. And it made us thousands of dollars where it was called the one-line press release. And the idea was that you'd write your press release up to 130 characters. We charged a dollar per character. Minimum of 50. So it in incentivized you to be, to be brief. Yep. And then it would get tweeted out from at Muckrack and then also featured on the right-hand side of the site because that would be, um, the journalists would see it there. So that was actually, that's a great piece of research. Uh, that was our first business model with Muckrack. And then uh, we made a few grand off of that. And then it was after that that we saw like, okay, there's probably a bigger opportunity. We, we saw that that was a lot of fun, but probably wouldn't be too scalable. So we saw that this idea of like providing people the research tool would be a much more um, scalable business and also lend itself better to a SaaS model. And this was you also calling up your customers. You realized your customers were people who were doing PR and saying, what else do you need? Am I right? It was constantly, what else do you need in order to do your job? 100%. Yeah. In fact, I remember we even invited um, 
one it was funny for a while we just would let those one-line press releases uh go and never analyzed it and then one day i threw it into excel and did a pivot table and found like there was one pr agency that had paid us a couple grand over the year you know over the course of a year and those one-line press releases so i remember like we'd showed them actually the first prototype we had if i remember right we were thinking for briefly of doubling down on the one-line press release product and and creating you know ways to add images to it and make them them fancier and then we had this kind of secondary idea off of it. I think it was actually my, my co-founder just was like, you know, they're going to need to know which journalist to pitch and we have the database. So he coded this, this thing up really quick that would just suggest the journalist based on what was in the one-line press release or a couple uh-huh. keywords. And then I remember we showed that workflow to people and it was like that last step of like, here are the journalists to pitch. Like their eyes lit up like, oh, you can find, how do you figure out who those journalists were? Or like the Twitter data. So like, we could tell there was a lot more excitement around finding the right journalists than there was on posting the one-line press release or making that better. And then that actually caused us to hone in a lot more on finding the be- on that whole idea of finding the right journals to pitch. What do you guys charge now? I think it's, it's an enterprise product, right? Where I can't just go to the site, sign up on my own, right? That's right. Yeah, it's an enterprise product. Uh, it, it all goes to the sales team. It's thousands a month and it can, or sorry, uh, thousands per year and uh, can scale up to the six figures depending on how big the organization is, how many users they have, et cetera. All right. I want to close that out with it. And I'm assuming, by the way, because this business grew so much, you couldn't focus on the podcast. You had to focus on the business. Am I right? Is that why you, you left it? Yeah, that's what happened. You know, I love doing Venture Voice. Uh, it was so much fun to interview the people. You know, I really identified with the listeners and getting good feedback from the listeners was a super, super positive uh, cycle. But yeah, the shorter words were taken off. Muckrack was taken off. We bootstrapped both the businesses. So they were a lot of work. I mean, it was, you know, for several years, two or three of us doing everything. And, you know, I was balancing the books, I was doing the sales, writing the purchase orders, getting our, you know, making sure we had the right insurance, every, everything. So yeah, it was a ton of work and I had to, uh, and there were, you know, years there was like, you know, we'd make a profit, but it was a struggle to make a profit. So uh, I just didn't have the, uh, the free time. What was the, the part that you weren't prepared for having done the interviews, having studied a uh, business, having started a business at 14, the web design business. What's the part that when you got to, you said all that practice and research and prep didn't prepare me for this. What was it? That's a good question. I would say, I would say two big things. You know, one was with radio tail. It was that struggle of knowing when to keep going, knowing when to quit, to kind of diagnose, is it me or is it the business? And then the other big challenge I found was just building a team, learning how to uh, hire people, manage people, lead people, especially because I never, uh, outside of my experiences during college, I never worked for a corporation. So it wasn't like I'd was a manager or even had a a manager as being a full-time employee. So I found that was actually one of the biggest struggles. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of good, I mean, I think I, there's lots of good advice from my interviews and lots of good books I can recommend on it, but there's such a large degree to 
when it comes to building a team, you just have to learn it the hard way. And what Sorry, did you anyone do? listening hoping how, to buy the How did you learn answers. it? How did you learn? Yeah, just bringing people on and learning how to, uh, how to manage them, kind of getting that feedback loop of, okay, what works, what doesn't work. I, you know, I find it's also such a delicate thing because some of it relates to your own personality. So, you know, there are different, there are many different kinds of leaders. I mean, that was actually one of my big takeaways from Venture Voice. I always thought I would discover that like, oh, entrepreneurs are extroverts or entrepreneurs are introverts or, you know, this or that. Right. I found like, as I'm sure you've seen on your podcast, such a huge range of personalities, even among the most successful entrepreneurs. Uh, so, you know, there's that element to which you have to find the leadership style that matches your own personality. So there's that kind of journey of self-discovery along with learning to lead that, that isn't just a cookie cutter kind of thing. And then there's also when it comes to managing people that you have to manage different personality types differently. So maybe you figure out how to manage one person and what makes them tick, I... but then you get your second employee and there are different personalities. So you try to manage them the same way you manage the first person and it fails. So it takes a while to like, just have been in enough positions of leadership and had enough reports to start to learn, you know, learn enough variety of skills to be versatile. All right. I thought when you were coming back that you were going to be lame. I'll be honest with you. You stopped doing it for a while. I thought you were going to be lame. You came out strong. And I thought, all right, he got Mark Cuban. He's going to think he got Mark Cuban. He's going to do a celebratory dance around it, blah, blah, blah. Mark Cuban's going to do the same stories he's told a million times. No, you had a really good perspective with him. You had a good rhythm with him. He was not afraid. He did repeat some stories that I heard him say before, but I freaking loved it. I remember exactly where I was running, where I heard him talk about how he bought the plane ticket that allowed him to take first class tickets as much as he wanted all over the world. I remember saying, I heard that story before. It's going to fire me up. And sure enough, it got me to go up this freaking hill that's right here um, about two and a half miles away from my house, which I freaking hate that hill. Um, it was really good. Venture Voice is a podcast. Uh, even the older stuff is worth listening to. Reed Hastings was one of my favorite. No, it was my favorite. Going back in time, Reed Hastings was by far my favorite because you could see how he thought about his audience back then. You could see how Reed Hastings thought about creating LinkedIn and why- Reed, when Reed Hoffman. Reed Hoffman. Who am I saying? Oh, yeah. Reed Hastings from Netflix. Thank you. Reed Hoffman. <laughs> he was talking about well, I even remember where I was running, where I heard that interview. I was in LA. I remember it's so weird how for me, music and uh, audio books and, and podcasts are linked up with where I was running or where I was listening to him. He's analyzing why MySpace has a different audience than him, how his audience is people who are bus busy at work and they don't have time to even be online. It's kind of interesting for the time that unlike the MySpace audience, his people need to get in and out. It was just really well done. And it's, uh, it's the first one that you're bringing back, and I think it's absolutely worth listening to. And I'm looking forward to seeing what you're doing in the future. Before we close it out, give me feedback. As a podcaster, what do you think of this interview? I don't, in fact, I don't need the nice stuff. The nice stuff is, Andrew, congratulations, great. Who gives a rat's? What feedback that you wish was done differently or better in this interview? Go ahead. What do you think? People are going to judge you now based on your analytical skills. That's a tough one. You know, at this point, you're more experienced than me. So I feel like, uh, like the novice uh, going at it. 
but it, it was it was fun i you know i enjoyed i mean i enjoyed uh getting getting challenged and brought back to the really early days as opposed to uh could have filled the show easily just talking about scaling the later companies you know it's funny with a lot of this stuff it's almost hard Trying to think it was better not knowing that, that I got to get to these like early de- stories because some of those early stories I haven't told in in years. So it takes more to dig it out of memory banks, but maybe it's more authentic hearing it, hearing it first drawn up from the memory banks versus uh, if I had a chance to uh, to to have uh, premeditated my uh, my answers on them. I did kind of do a pre-interview with you on our conversation a week ago. I I took I take endless notes on people so that when I do interviews with them, I've got it. And I think that helped me a lot. There are a lot of parts here that I didn't realize even having researched you that that was going on. That was helpful. I'm going to give myself the negative feedback since you're too nice to do it. Or maybe you're just enjoying the conversation and you couldn't. I find that any podcaster, including myself, who gets too excited or happy about a guest loses a little bit of the edge. And I think that we don't need to be friends with the guest, but we do need to have a little bit of a challenging edge. Otherwise, all we're doing is having a brag, happy-go-lucky session with the person. And a little bit of what about this makes for an awkward, uncomfortable feeling for the audience, but also draws the person out in a way that gives some satisfaction to the audience that they couldn't get otherwise, that they couldn't get from your Twitter, couldn't get from you sitting down and writing or, or talking into a mic on your own. We didn't have that. Um, I also had I had this experience where because I talked to my guests during the ads, a professor brought my 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 ads into his classroom and he invited me to sit and listen since everything's on Zoom to people analyzing. And one of the things that I learned listening to these students analyze my ad reads is even a little bit of negativity with my with my uh, advertiser. I thought was there to give credibility. Look, Andrew's going to give you both sides. Even a little bit of negativity made them feel uncomfortable because they realized Andrew took money from this company. If Andrew has anything negative, it's like he's he's an ingrate. Like, how do you take money from someone and then you say something negative about them? And every time that they said something negative that I that came out of my mouth, it was with this uncomfortable feeling about this, like, why would Andrew treat the sponsor that way? It's okay to treat the guest that way, but the sponsor, and even me mentioning my pitch was like an infomercial, I realized I'm going a little bit too much into the negative territory around my sponsor, which I totally, I don't think the sponsors care. They trust me. The results are there for it, but I don't want to make the audience feel like I am disrespectful of somebody that that they're sitting back and, and seeing is a customer of mine. Because if you disrespect the customer who's paying you for an ad, why not disrespect the audience who's going to pay you for something? It's like spitting in someone's food after they, after they served it up for you. Anyway, there's my let, let me Let me ask you, as uh, someone who tried to do dynamic podcast ads in 2005, why aren't you doing them now? Or why don't you insert them in post-production? Ah, okay. Um, it's still a pain in the ass to serve up uh, ads and so that's the biggest one. The thing that I discovered also with podcast ads, it's if you try to play it in the, um, if you try to compete with Facebook and Google on trackable ads served up to specific people, it's going to be, it's going to be too challenging and you're going to lose. Spotify has a chance of doing it and even they're kind of challenged by it. But also you're missing the beauty, at least at this point in podcasting, of what works with podcast advertising. To understand it, you have to go back to, I interviewed the founder of Uggs. He sold these highly fashionable 
all the celebrities were wearing his Uggs boots. And he loved Rush Limbaugh, I think. He definitely bought an ad from Rush Limbaugh. And I said, how'd the ads go? He says, this one woman came in, older lady, comes in and asks for, I think, five different pairs of Uggs. When the salesman says, why? Because she doesn't seem like a typical Uggs customer. Rush Limbaugh said it. And so I'm going to go and buy all these Uggs boots. Super expensive boots, not her style. She's not the target market. She's buying it because Rush Limbaugh said it. There is a feeling that comes from the host that, that the sponsor is asking and buying and getting. And that, I think, is a special part of podcast advertising. So I have to keep remembering that. When I think about Jason Calacanos, whose podcast I listen to, he, it's not, he, sometimes he reads it and I go, why is this still working for me? He's clearly reading it. Even when, the, he must have a line in his questionnaire for his, for his uh, sponsors, what's your call to action? He even reads that. He goes, so here is your CTA. Here's your call to action. It's like, he's reading that part too. It feels to me. Why is it still working? Because the more I like him, the more I care about what he's pitching. It's not about the words. It's about, he could just be saying, I like them, I like them, I like them, I like them. And that would be enough. Anyway, that's my takeaway from podcast advertising. You thinking about bringing back Radio Tail? Not, not anytime no soon. Way. Don't do it. Yeah, but it's, uh, but it's funny you say that. That was one of the objections and challenges I saw to try and do in dynamic ads back in 2005 was that, a lot of people just preferred the uh, the host read, but I'm very I'm very happy being in the uh, the SaaS business with Muckrack, uh, and it's keeping me more than more than busy with it on its own. I would say, um, by the way, the worst example of this is The Verge. The Verge has ads. The, the Verge podcast people will talk about how 5G is just an illusion. It's not really going to do anything. It's not a race. It's not this. It doesn't do anything right now. Now let's take a word from our sponsors. And they go, where it sounds like coins dropping. And then it's the sponsor. Verizon is bringing 5G to surgery. Surgery is now happening on 5G. Like They just said this doesn't happen. Verizon is pretending it happened. It's a little bit out of sync and it makes them, I think... It doesn't, it doesn't look good. And it's because they dynamically insert ads. And I think that's a problem. All right. Here's what I always suggest to you as a podcaster. I want you to do more. I complained to you the first time, like 10 years ago. Why aren't you doing more? You said, most people don't know. It takes me 10 out. Find a way to have it take less hours. You have a freaking good team of people behind you, right? They're creating so much for you. You just needed to say, I need to do an interview. Somebody bought you a freaking mic, got you everything you need. Have them do more of the work, produce more. You're good. I'll be rolling out more podcasts. Plan is uh, one every two weeks, and who knows? Maybe I'll ramp it up more. It's good, uh, good encouragement. Good. Guys, keep watching it, keep listening to him, and keep complaining to him about why he's not doing enough podcasts. <laughs> it is called Venture Voice, and I want to thank the two sponsors who made this interview happen. The first is TopTal. If you're hiring developers, and I know Greg in the back of his head is now going to remember something about TopTal. I'll have to go back and search for it in the podcast episode, and two months from now, he might come back and look for it, and you might too. And here it is for you, your call to action. Go to toptal.com slash Mixergy. And number two, if you're looking to play around with ideas, host your ideas on a site and a platform that will take good care of them, go to hostgator.com slash Mixergy. Greg, thanks so much. Continue success. Bye, everyone.